Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will continue to study the book of Song of Songs. We are in chapter 4, verse 2. Just quickly to review, what we said was, we reach a point where the human soul was married to God. In our spiritual life, there are different stages, and there come a point in our life where we marry God. means that He becomes what I seek, what I want. And that becomes a commitment. The surprising thing is when the soul married God, God spent a lot of time talking about how beautiful the human soul is. And that's a surprising thing maybe to a lot of us because a lot of time when we think about heaven, when we marry God and live with Him eternally, we don't think of God praising us and saying how beautiful you are and having a beautiful symphony of love together. We always think it's one way, we're praising God, but God is actually also highlighting what He likes. When the Bible talks about what Jesus is telling us, what the Lord is telling us, He's not, God is not being nice, or He's not trying to be sweet to us. He's actually specifically sharing with us what He loves about us. So these are true, these are not exaggerated way of how God looks at the soul. And a good way to look at this is look at the parents dealing with their children. No matter how difficult the child is, you always find a parent finding so much beauty in their child. That not only is even if a parent are, are blessed with children who have special circumstances, they actually sometimes are more attached to them than a, a normal child. So God already have given us that glimpse in parenthood. We said last time that God is not just says you're beautiful, oh, you're such a wonderful child. He's actually going in and describing each part of you and saying how each part of you is beautiful. You know, a lot of times in relationships, for example, people complain or they feel that one of the spouses don't spend time with the other person. Or they feel like they don't really, they're not genuine about what they're saying. That's why it's important when you're talking to somebody to actually be very specific about what you like about them. And the Lord is exactly doing this. He says, this is what I like about you. This is what I see beautiful in you. And that's important because it helps us to understand what God wants from us and what He praises in us. And last time we said that there are seven features that the Lord specifically highlighted that He likes in the human soul. And we continued last time, we talked about the eyes of the human soul behind the veil. Today, verse 2, He says, Your tooth, the teeth, are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing 
every one of which bears twin, and none is barren among them. So what is God saying? You know, when you have a baby, you have a little baby, the baby usually doesn't chew. He drinks milk from the pacifier. So when you have teeth, it means you have matured. You no longer eat the things for babies. There's a period of you where you have grown. For example, you'll find people over the lifetime, when they were younger, they're obsessed with certain secular music and certain uh, secular shows and certain things, and I can't live without it, and it's so hard to give it up. As they get older and older, you find loud music doesn't doesn't appeal to people that much. You find like, you know, some maybe some shows does not appeal to people that much. Even certain food does not appeal to people that much. There is certain growth that happens in people's life. So the Lord looks and says, "It says your teeth, these teeth have matured. Your taste have matured. They look." perfect he says look here the expression he says every one of which pairs bears twins like when you look at the teeth there's no gaps in between them they are perfect they are matching the top and the bottom of the teeth are matching perfectly the teeth also has has to do a lot with eating the word of god god actually watches you as you are reading the bible and eating the bible and he says wow what a beautiful teeth that eats the Bible. Obviously, this is about the spirit. That's why St. Gregory of Nessa said, this is a person reducing the divine mysteries into small fragments for a clearer interpretation of the text, making a spiritual food more easily acceptable for the body of the church. So every time I read a passage and I try to benefit and break it down, and practice and live it, God says, wow, you have matured. You're no longer a baby. You're no longer there the mom have took you up to come to church. There's maturity that happened in you. Also, the tooth represents the faith. And if you guys remember, our Lord talks about, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my body will have eternal life. So this tooth that comes in and swallows the bread and body of our Lord Jesus Christ is a tooth of faith. I remember one time one of my good friends said something I really liked. He told me people like usually two things. They like to talk and they like to eat. Okay? And how did God make our relationship with him like we eat his body and blood? And we talk to him in prayer. He made it according to what we like. Okay, so the faith is really important. The teeth is very important, and you can contrast this to the teeth of the sinner. If you'll open Psalm fifty-seven, it says, "My soul is among lions. I lie among the son of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongues a sharp sword." So there's difference between when he sits with somebody who's mature in the spiritual life. What you hear from them are things they have learned and they help you to grow. And there are some you sit with them and all what you hear are things that destroys your spiritual life.
And I mentioned this before, but you could sit with somebody who makes a joke about something in, this, in the liturgy or the Bible, and it could impact you for the rest of your life. Spears and arrows. But then he says what about the tooth? He says, none of them are not barren. All of them are fruitful. Every part of mature life is fruitful. My thoughts, my actions, my hearts, everything is fruitful. And then, this is the Lord says, He says, I love it when you're sitting down and reading the Bible. I love it when you break it down and try to apply it. He says, your lips are like a strand of scarlets, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your lips, here it says, your lips, not as white and thick as, and, and, as a leper's lips. So in the Old Testament, when people are leprous, they become unclean, and their lips look like they're sick. You find this in Leviticus 13. It says, now the leper of whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. It says, unlike this, when I look at your lips, it's like a strand of scarlet. It's like a necklace of a scarlet color. What does that mean? Your lips are covered with a necklace of scarlet or the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your mouth and lips are no longer your own. They have been covered by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the Western saints, she says something beautiful. She says, A wound of mercy, heart of Jesus, hide me in your depth as a drop of your own blood, and do not let me out forever. Lock me in your depth, and do yourself teach me to love you. Eternal love, do yourself form my soul, that it may be capable of returning your love. So what's happening is, is that this lips that is dripping red scarlet, these are the lips that have been covered by the blood of the Lord. If you guys remember in the story of Isaiah, when the cherubim, which is the burning one, the word cherubim, a seraphim means the burning one, full of fire, came to him and appeared to him. What did he say? He says, Woe to me, I am done, because I am a man of unclean lips. And the world in the midst of people of unclean lips. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm in big, big trouble. My lips are not clean. What happened? That burning seraphim got him a charcoal from the altar and touched his lips and told him, Your iniquity is taking away and your sin is purged. And this is important because in the Orthodox faith, forgiveness of sins does not end by confession. Forgiveness of sins is repentance, confession, and communion. Three stages. Because the goal of repentance is not that my sins are gone, the goal is that I unite with God. 
which happens in communion. Also, the lips are lit like red scarlet reminds us of the story of Rehab. You guys remember the story of Rehab when she hid the, uh, the two spies? And then what happened? She, she put a red scarlet at her door. So when the enemy, when the people of Israel attacked the city, they would save her. So that red, the red scarlet color is a way for her to be saved. The lips that has the blood of Jesus on it is a lips that are beautiful. And the heaven looks at us and is astonished that the blood of the Lord is on our lips. That which they cannot see is on our lips. And he tells her her mouth is all lovely. I've never seen somebody who can speak about their spouse or somebody they love that beautiful. He says, your mouth is so lovely. Like your speech is always with grace, seasoned with salt. You know how to answer. Can you imagine? By the way, this is the same soul that earlier on said, I am dark, but I'm lovely. This is the same soul that was lazy. This is the same soul that have lost connection with God few times. This is not a perfect soul that have not committed any sins. But what made the soul unique is that it continued to search for God. Continued to fight until it married him. He tells her the temples, the temples are kind of the cheek, the upper part of the cheek. He says your temple are like pomegranate. Pomegranate is very red, right? So it expresses how God loves the soul when it stands in front of him and feels unworthy. You know, I'll tell you guys something. A lot of a lot of men and women in a married relationship, they one of the issues they fight over is appreciation. People don't the spouses don't feel the other spouses appreciating them or loving them. God says, when I look at your cheek feeling unworthy, wow, that is such a beautiful scene in my eyes. You want to know what makes God happy? Right there. The teeth that reads the Bible, the lips that are full of the blood of Jesus, the mouth that speaks the word of God, the cheeks that are feeling unworthy. He says, your neck is like a tower of David, built for an armory in which hangs a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. So what is the whole idea of the neck? The neck always resembles the will of the human being. The neck resembles what? The will of the human being. If you guys just get a yeah, any funny line, if you ever have seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, remember that, right? So the wife said the husband is the head, but the wife is what? The neck, she moves the head wherever it wants, okay? So the head usually resembles the will, where actions will go. So the neck could, if the neck is broken, it shows somebody's humiliated. If the neck is stiff, it shows that somebody is disobedient. 
If the neck is straight and strong, it shows that this person is noble or honorable. But God says, when I look at your will, your will to follow me, your will to be with me, I see an honorable will. You're not disobedient and you're not moving around without a purpose. You're actually elevated. Your will is elevated above the world. And I have to keep in mind that what I choose to do with my will reflects who I am. When I choose to spend a lot of my time arguing and fighting and fill my thoughts with jealousy and envy and, and all this garbage, I bring my, my thoughts and my hearts and all the beautiful things that God loves to the ground. It's not a Tower of David that is... Yeah, what does it mean, Tower of David? Tower, obviously, is a place where people watch. And actually, each church has a tower on the top of it to, rem to remind us of the idea of watchful, being watchful. But the Tower of David is where the army would stand. And he says, on it there are valiant men, people who know how to fight, people who know how to, to win wars. It means that I have to be determined in my will. Can you imagine when you have somebody who still struggles to read 10 minutes of the Bible every day? Struggles to pray for five minutes every day. Struggles to control their fasting and their food intake. Where is the will? Is this a will like a Tower of David that is strong? Or this is a will that is defeated and humiliated? God says, I look at you and I see how beautiful is your will. Every action I take, God sees. Every time I delay sin, God sees. Every time I give up what I like, I'm building a Tower of David. Obviously, he's also saying that she's a tower because she's not weak. She's very strong. And now he says, your breasts are like the two fawns, twins of gazelle, which feed among the lily. When, if we look at, the at this soul as a church, when he talks about the two breasts, some people would say they will represent the two pulpits. Each church has two pulpits that we usually read the Bible from. So this is what feeds the people in the church. Okay? But also, if you guys look at what feeds us as the children of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why in the Orthodox faith, we do not highlight one testament over the other. Both of them are important. That's why even in the, in the liturgy, we read the Psalms and we also read the Gospels because both their feed us. Look what he's saying. He says they feed the fawns. What are the fawns? They are the young deers. So what is the whole thing? God says when you are a little baby and you're being fed, all these beautiful things. I can't wait for you to run like a gazelle. 
When you feed a little baby, right? One day you're waiting for him to run with what he has learned, with what he has received. That's why in Proverbs it says, as a loving deer and a graceful, graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be in raptures with her love. Okay, so there's a sign of satisfaction. Sign of satisfaction. Obviously, the breast reminds us of mother feeding her children. And as you guys know, the mother's milk, there's nothing like it. No matter how much they try to find a substitute for it, they can't. And now actually even sometimes people will give donor milk. You know what's donor milk? It's like when a mother has extra milk, she gives to a mother who doesn't have milk. But even the donor milk that they give to a child that is not his mom, sometimes does not have the same impact. There's a perfect milk that come to the children of God. God sees that perfect relationship that we have with the Word of God. And He says, they feed among the lilies. You guys remember we said, the lilies are these beautiful little uh, plants and a lot of times you talk about them in the midst of thorns. We are being fed in the midst of a world that is full of sinfulness. So it's not like I'm being fed and it's easy and it's comfortable. It's not. That's why he's saying, when I see you eating in a world that does not read the Bible. We live in a world where people come and be like, I don't like to read. Like people spend months at a time not reading the Word of God. He says, you are a lily among the thorns. Lily among a, the thorns. You see, when the Lord talks about the human soul, He says everything so beautiful about it. The little we offer. He says, until the day breaks, and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. So beautiful. God, after he spoke about all these qualities of the human soul, is telling her, I will go away to the mountain of, of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Historically, the, mount, the mountain of the hill of frankincense is Calvary. This is when God opened, offered himself as an eternal sacrifice. And actually, if you guys remember, when Nicodemus went to visit our Lord Jesus Christ, what did he bring him? He brought him a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Because these are expensive spices that people use, especially to bury the dead. So God is saying, I am going to the mountain where I'm going to offer my self-sacrifice until day breaks and the shadow flee away. Oh, We're going to explain this a bit and as, we go, as we go along. But basically what God is saying, He says, for the soul, He says, I will die like the disciples, I will rise again, and I will go to heaven, and I will send you the Holy Spirit. But there's one day that I will see you face to face. When the 
until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, until your life ends, then things will change. That's why the Bible says the last enemy is death. We still have one enemy to overcome. Also, it's important to think about the concept of the mountain. God says, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You know where I'm going. If you want to meet me, come meet me there. There's always a mountain in the life of the children of God. And I was talking to the kids the other day. I told them, they were asking me about being lukewarm. And I told them, very simple. If you have not taken a spiritual retreat for about six months, you probably are lukewarm. Okay? Because we need to go up to the mountain. Retreats are not also easy. It's a process of climbing up a mountain. It takes time. It takes effort. I fight until I resemble God. And what happens on this mountain? It is, the focus is on the love and the crucifixion and the death of the Lord, what he has done for me. Why? Because that cross, the focus on the cross, transforms me. One of the saints said something beautiful. She said, we resemble God most. When do we resemble God most? When we forgive our neighbors. God is love, goodness, and mercy. You can only do this when you go on the mountain of Calvary. You sit in front of God and you be like, wow, I am full of garbage and I need to go back and forgive. And when you forgive, you look more like God. And this is the whole point of retreats. It helps me to get glimpses of God until this life is over and my soul can fly with him. The shadows are gone and it's me and God together. That's why the Lord said in Matthew, he says, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. I am with you always, even until the end of ages. Even though we cannot see God yet face to face, but he's still allowing us to have access to him. Then God concludes, and he's now wrapping up the whole description of the young, beautiful soul. He says, you are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. You know, when you read this verse, it's like, really? that I know I am messed up <laughs> as much as it can be. And he says, there is no spot in you. It's crazy. By the way, obviously, I don't need to clarify this, but just clarify it. When he says you're all fair, the word fair is not like our standard, our language today, which is fair, good, excellent. Fair means you are gorgeous. You are the best as it can be. That says you are fair, so beautiful. There's nothing like you. All fair, all beautiful. There is no spot on you. There is nothing wrong in you. And by the way, this is important to keep in mind because sometimes we want to live 
with a life that has spots in us. Like sometime I say, I come to church and took communion, but I continue to let my thoughts be controlled by the devil. I'm letting spots in me. I serve and I help and I like to help everybody, but I go home and disrespect my parents and yell at them. I'm nice to people and I welcome them, but I still go curse left and right. I give to the poor, but I cheat on exams. It doesn't work. God says, there is no spot in you. Beautiful. I cannot. The relationship with God and Christianity, it is a true relationship. It is not a matter of doing this and not do this. It's a matter of consecrating the whole being to God, because God give us all who he is. Then God says, he's telling her, I'm going to the mountain of Calvary. I'm going to the Meron Elo. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amman, from the top of Sinar and Hormon, from the lions then, from the mountains of the leopards. So what's really happening here? God is saying, I'm going to the mountain of love and sacrifice. And he's telling her, first of all, you'll find Jesus, the, the, the wording of, the, of this, the, this, this poem, the poem changes. Now he calls the soul spouse. Because she, we said she's married to him at this point. He tells her, come with me from the Mount of Lebanon. The, Mount of, the mountain of Lebanon is representing the world that we live in right now. This is the Mount of Lebanon, or was actually used to be full of idols, like Saint Cyril of Alexandria said. So God says, leave the mountain that you live in right now, leave the world that you're attached to right now. And he mentions all these places. Amman is a place near Damascus. Uh, Shener is, is called Hermon, which is again, an area near uh, Damascus. And these, these mountains were known to have a lot of lions and leopards and animals that will attack. So he's telling the human soul, leave the world. Leave this glory of the world that people like to see. Lebanon as a country, and we'll see it later on, always represents beauty. So when he talks about the mountain of Lebanon, He's saying that beauty of the world that people look for. And he says, come with me twice. This is not just for fun. In Hebrew language, when people, when there's a repetition, it is for emphasis. I want you to come with me. I want you to follow me. I want you to deny your cross and walk behind me. You deny yourself and walk behind me. Come with me. Leave the mountain of this world and come with me to the mountain of love, mountain of sacrifice. The soul has not yet responded to this invitation, but what is God saying? You have ravaged my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravaged my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. Again, he's talking to the human soul, sister and spouse. Why? Because it's really important 
people to emphasize that this book is not about sexual relations. It's about the bond that we have with the Lord. And that's why in Isaiah it said, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth. Your Redeemer, the Creator, your Maker, is your husband. And he tells her, one look from your eyes secures my love. You know, it's like when the right-hand thief just cried one time and said, Lord, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Some people used to say that the right-hand thief didn't expect to make it to the kingdom. He's just telling Jesus, when you go to your kingdom, just remember me. One humble prayer, one tear, can bring me much close to God. And the necklace, remember, you guys remember the necklace is worn on the neck. We talked about the neck representing the will. So the necklace are the, the things that uh, beautify our will, which is the actions of obedience and humility. You guys remember there is a very evil king in the Old Testament. His name is Ahab. And God sent him a message. He told him, you will die because you committed a terrible sin. And Ahab went and humbled himself in front of God. And then what did God do? He came to Isaiah and told uh, Elijah and told him, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Even when the worst, Ahab used to worship idols. His wife basically changed their religion in Israel so people can worship evil idols. When he prayed once from his heart, he, God, answered. And this also makes us think about how much of our prayers are from our hearts. How much of the times we lift our eyes are not eyes that are distracted. Because one look, one touch, one word, one feelings, one sigh, this is what God is that ravishes the heart of God. And then the Lord continues, says, How fair is your love, my sister and my spouse. She is not only beautiful, but her love is beautiful. How much better than wine is your love, and the scent of your perfumes and all spices. If you guys remember in the very first chapter in the book of Song Songs, when we started the book, basically, what did it say? How did it start? The human soul spoke, and she said, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. The human soul was telling God, Your love is better than wine. When the woman, when the soul wanted to express how much it loves God, she said, You know, the, the wine, what's wine for them? Wine is what they used to take for to de-stress, to have fun, to enjoy. They take it as a medicine. Everything is wine. Okay? So she's telling him, your love is better than wine. When God is expressing back his feelings toward the human soul, 
He's telling her, you know how you feel about me? I'm trying to get it to you. I'm using the same words of yours. Your love is better than wine for me. In our relationship with God, God quite often expresses his love to each person in a unique way, similar to how we ourselves express our love to God. One of uh, the saints said, O Jesus, eternal God, thank you for your countless graces and blessing. Let every beat of my heart be a new hymn of thanksgiving to you, O God. Let every drop of my blood circulate for you, Lord. My soul is one hymn of adoration of your mercy. I love you, O God, for yourself alone. We look at how much God is talking about his love to us. And you look and be like, how much do I truly love God from my heart? How much I'm consumed with him. How much offering and suffering do I offer to him in my fasting and my prostration, forgiving other and accepting people. It's, a, it's amazing, it's mind-blowing. God looks in front of the angels and looks at you and says, you're gorgeous. And he says, the, set, the scent of your perfumes and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. So guys, remember, the, the perfumes are always resembling the fruits of the Holy Spirit the smell and the aroma of Jesus. So God says, I, you smell so beautiful. He doesn't say, I give you the smell. He says, you smell so wonderful because you have reflected the aroma of the Lord. And then he tells her, your lips, God just can't stop talking about how beautiful they may be. Your lips or my spouse. They're married. You know, when people get married, they get sick of each other. They don't say these nice things to each other. This is God says, when you're married, see what I have to tell you. Your lips or my, my spouth drip as honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and your fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He says, when he says honey is, honey is dropping from your mouth, it means it's ready to fall. He means... Honey usually represents the word of God. It means like when people sit with you, honey is coming out. You sit with some people and they're always full of words of encouragement and words of kindness and a smile and contentment in life. And when you sit with them, you feel like all your anxieties goes away and the world is beautiful and you feel God is with you and God is working. Sometimes you sit with people, you know, almost every visitation I go to now, people says, Abuna, we think the end of the world is near. You think the world of the earth is near? And it like, it's like, you feel like people are just depressed. This is, God says, where, where is the honey that's coming? Where is the honey that's coming? It's at the tip of the tongue. This is what God is saying. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul 
and healthy to the bones. This is what Proverbs said. These beautiful, encouraging words are healthy to the bones and the soul. The bones usually in the Bible represents faith. It encourages the faith. That's why we constantly in the in the in the liturgy and in the light and our prayer, we praise God and tell Him, "Holy, holy, holy." Our words are full of praise and thanksgiving and joy and happiness because we are happy that He is our love and we can't wait to be with Him. We cannot wait to be with Him. Obviously, honey and milk reminds us of the promised land. And it basically says, your mouth is full of the promises of God. When people sit with us and they come to you with a problem or they come to you with an issue, a lot of times we want to comfort them with our own words. Where is the honey and the milk that gives refreshment to the soul? The promises of God that gives hope and light. Not my own experience. And he tells her, the smell of smell of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You guys know if for example you ever uh, walk in the kitchen in your house when your mom is frying some food, what's gonna happen when you go outside the house? You're gonna smell like food, right? Or if you hug if you hug somebody who's wearing certain perfume. You walk out, you smell like this perfume. So he's telling her, your fragrance smells like the fragrance of Lebanon. Where did she get the fragrance from? She got it when she hugged God. You guys remember in the last chapter, when he gave her a big hug? He told her, your left hand, your, your left hand is under my head, and he gave her a hug. She reflects the smell and the presence of God. This is the beauty of the soul that walks with God. The beauty of the soul that walks with God. And now, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible and in the description, and I wish we can all memorize it. It says, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. God looks at you as a sealed garden, a private garden. A spring shut up a fountain sealed. What does it mean a garden enclosed in is my sister? It means that the fruits in your garden is only offered to God. Closed, nobody else can come in and steal it. You guys remember the Garden of Eden? It was closed until Adam and Eve allowed the serpent to come in. Then it became a problem. Closed garden is beautiful. Some of, one of the person I knew very well, he prayed together with some, yeah, some people who were very close to God. And he was describing, he said, as they were praying, the whole room was full of incense and hanut. Closed garden. 
When people imagine the church comes together and every person is praying and lifting up their heart to God. That's why it's really important for me not to allow wrong ideology, lusts and desires enter my heart. My heart is a garden closed for God and only Him can enter. One of the saints she said, I spend every free moment at the feet of the hidden God. He is my master. I ask him about everything. I speak to him about everything. Here I obtain strength and light. Here I learn everything. Here I am given light on how to act toward my neighbor. The hidden God is in my heart. The hidden God is in the Eucharist. I want everything inside of me to belong to God. One of the issues when people, married issues, when people are married and you find one of them complaining about their spouse to another person, then they get frustrated. God wants our hearts to be a garden. When God created us, we were in the garden. When Jesus prayed, Covenant Thursday, he was in the garden. When Jesus was buried, he was in the garden. Which garden is my heart would choose to be? Which garden would my heart would choose to be? One of the most beautiful gardens of all humans is St. Mary. The Bible says she kept all these things secrets in her heart. And that's why the psalmist says, I hid your words inside of me that I may not sin against you. If I ask you today, what is the thought that you have been hiding in your mind and your heart all day long today? Is it a thought that is full of a garden for God? Or is it a thought that is shows that you don't have a closed garden? The devil have penetrated every part of you and it becomes a problem for God said you are a special garden a spring the spring means everything I speak about every water that comes from me it is to feed the garden of the Lord and keep in mind one idea I want to finish up with is that everything that our Lord have asked us to do, He has done it for us. And everything He asks us to do, He has given us. And He says, in your garden, the Holy Spirit will be hidden inside of you to give you water and to, and to, and to nourish you. If you guys remember in Jeremiah, a very famous verse, He says, God was complaining about his own people. What did he say? He says, for my people have committed two evils. What are the evils that people committed? They have forsaken me, the fountain of the living water, and they hone for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, you have chosen a life that will never satisfy you. 
and you have forsaken me. Compare that to a closed garden that is full of virtues, fruits, and water from the Holy Spirit that nourishes this garden. This is the state of a soul that is married to God. It's praised, it's encouraged, it's loved, its life begins and it's more valuable than the whole world because it knows that the God of all creation looks at it as his own beloved. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.